Before we get into it, I need to remind you that the Football Index podcast is supported by footballindextrader.co.uk, the best site for in-depth scouting and trading strategy. For the first time, you can now check out a free tour of the members' content before you sign up. Just go to the homepage and click on the Take the Tour button to see a whole month of player scouting from this season and some sample member articles too. As an exclusive offer for podcast listeners, you can give the site a try with a 25% discount on your first month with Fig. 25. That's over on footballindextrader.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Index podcast, episode 144. Last week I was joined by FI Headhunter's last minute standing guest and he was fantastic. We talked about what FI need to do to bring in Wales, what FI need to do to stabilize the market, what FI have messed up with and done really well in this previous announcement. So please do check that out if you haven't done so already. It was a really awesome episode and props to Headhunter for joining in last minute. Today I'm joined by two debutants, a guy that I've been trying to get on for ages and someone who's burst onto the Football Index scene recently. So first up, Alpha Chaser, how are you doing, mate? I'm all good, thank you, buddy. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad, not too bad. Why don't you tell people a bit more about your Football Index journey? Okay, so I started out on Football Index about a year ago during the Euros, under 21 Euros this was. And I just recently finished my exams and a friend of mine, we were watching the under 21 Euros just to watch a bit of football. And I think we saw an advert or maybe a friend, another friend of mine said to me, you know, have you heard about Football Index? We just said, you know what, let's let's play around with this. And I remember I was watching the Romania under 21 game and I saw Yanis Hagi. <laughs> and I saw him taking free kicks off of both feet and corners off of both feet. And I said, you know what, this guy looks really good. So I remember we both put in £10 each on my account. And we bought Haggy, we bought Robert Scoff, who was playing for Denmark under 21s. And that was, a, that was about 90p and a pound each. And then I think apart from that, we just sat on it for about six months, didn't touch anything, completely forgot about it. And then a friend of mine messaged me and he said to me, you're not going to believe this. And I was like, what? And he sent me a picture of his portfolio. When we were in A-levels, he'd bought a whole bunch of players on Football Index. We're going back a good few years now, maybe four or five years. And he might have put on £400 or so. And he had like KDB at 60p. He had Neymar at something like 90p, I want to say. And he turned this sort of portfolio, which cost him £400, into about two 2.5k portfolio. And I just, I was blown away by it. And then that was sort of when it, I sort of... Um, started my real sort of serious journey with Football Index. And I'd say I became more involved around the January period, feeding mm. in more and more money. And then here we are today. I'm a big, big fan. Mm. So when did the kind of analysis spreadsheet start popping up? I think it was mainly when I decided to sort of get more serious with it. I saw that, you know, the standard players, which, you know, everyone knows about and everyone knows are going to be sort of superstars, they're highly priced. And I've always been involved in football manager or manager mode on FIFA or just watching European football in general. You know, I've, I've, I used to do like small accumulators all throughout my life. And I just thought, you know what, I know a decent bit about football. Why not sort of capitalise on it and make money properly from it? So I saw that, you know, with Football Index, if you put in a bit of time and a bit of effort, and then you can really make nice rewards. So, you know, it was when I decided to get a bit more serious. I thought, you know, I just had recent experience at a, um, an asset manager where I was, I was doing bits on Excel. Um, and I thought, you know, this is, this is quite simple. If you put in a bit of time, a bit of research, you can actually sort of pinpoint players which 
you might see as underpriced or, you know, if you're looking at a whole batch of players, who, who performs the best out of these batch of players and then selecting certain players from there. So I used it early on with, you know, small money, maybe £100 on a player. Um, I remember I bought Milik Rashika at something like 176 and he ended up getting into like £2.10 very, very shortly. And there were a few players that I did it with and it, it just it just worked out really profitable. So I carried on from there um, and sort of I've spent my time I wouldn't say publishing my finds, but I mean, yeah, I would say publishing my finds. <laughs> and then sort of, yeah, it's just gone on from there. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously come with some criticism, some praise, For but I'm sure, sure we'll, we'll get onto that later on. But we're, we're also joined by someone who's hot on the scene. He's, uh, I, I would call you, Football Index Machine, probably the, the best new Football Index Twitter account in the past month or so that I've seen. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hello, mate. You're too kind. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so yeah. So I'm Index Machine. I am actually a human behind it. <laughs> <laughs> so I I started on on FI. Let's see, probably about spring of last year. So we're talking about 15 months or so. There was a couple of guys at work who were talking about product, which kind of piqued my interest. And then I think I was probably served some kind of targeted ad, which kind of nudged me in the direction of actually downloading the thing and getting involved. I think like most people, I started off pretty small. I you know, put a few quid in, didn't really understand the product, made tons of mistakes. I sort of remember I'd bought a bunch of players and then when they were paid IPD dividends after I'd bought them on the same night, I thought I'd found some kind of weird fix in the system. But, you know, it turns out I just hadn't read the rules properly. <laughs> um, but, you know, over the course of a few months, started to gain a better understanding of how it worked, build up a bit of an understanding of different strategies that could be applied, and then started to invest uh, much more money money involved in it. So my background is in, it's in finance, working in investment management. So sort of have a decent understanding of how you, you think about trading and investment strategies uh, and also work as a data scientist in that context. So it's kind of a nice mix of thinking about investment strategies, but also thinking about things in a very sort of data driven way. So understanding like how do you think about risk and reward? How do you use like simulation techniques, which I'm sure we'll come on to. And then on top of that, I think what I've loved about FI is, is I'm able to sort of use those skills, but apply it to the game of football, which I love. I think, like yourself, Fig, I'm a, I'm a long-suffering Arsenal fan. Oh, dear. Yeah. Oh dear. Don't, let's not talk about mm. that too much. I think, <laughs> um, Alpha, you are as well, aren't you? I am indeed, sadly, oh, sadly, gosh. sadly. It's going to turn into an Arsenal Anonymous, this. Yeah, even more depression. Sorry, Machine, rudely interrupted you. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, um, so I think just been able to apply those skills with a love for football and, and, you know, spent a number of years playing around with fantasy football games, but it was never really more than, you know, just trying to win 50 quid off your mates at the end of the year. So this, for me, was just like the perfect mix where I can apply all those things together. Awesome. Well, I mean, you've been coming up with some fascinating stuff, which has really piqued the interest of a load of traders. And now before we talk a little bit about the announcement and, and getting some miscellaneous questions, I just need to plug the Patreon. It seems as though I've got loads of signups in the past few days, even though the market is down. And I think it might be attributed to FI Headhunter coming on the pod and plugging it very nicely. But um, yeah, before we get into it, I have started Patreon. If you don't know what it is, it's basically where I provide kind of premium and extra content for traders. There's £3, £5, £8 and £12 tiers, VAT not included. And yeah, I'm just trying to help traders profit more on their football index journeys by adding as much insight as I can with myself and 
I had some great contributors and guests alongside me. We had football index analysis, Joel from Index Edge, the founder of Index Edge, come and do a webinar yesterday, which was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, really enjoyed it myself. I think I asked most of the questions at the end of it. Um, so if you guys are interested, head over to patreon.com forward slash FI guide for more information and join a growing community at the Fig Patreon. So that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash FI guide. So I've got some miscellaneous questions here. Football Index Nature Boy, we're all depressed. What can you say that will cheer us up? Doesn't have to be FR related. Why don't you go first, Alpha? Do you know what? I was actually having to think about this question and, and I am actually going to make it a little bit FI related just because I think it's important to put a bit of perspective on what's going on right now. And you know, it's, it's not necessarily something that I can say that will cheer everyone up per se, but obviously I know how stressful this period has been. It's lots of put a lot of faith in the product and in some cases have put more money into FI than they realistically should have. But obviously I'd just like to share my opinion on the current situation and share some sort of help that I feel people can take on board when dealing with the situation. So I personally feel that this is just a blip um, in the road. Um, and I do feel that, you know, if I have to take some sort of evasive action as, as confidence is really low right now, and it, this is a huge turning point for FI. But I do feel that in, you know, a year's time when all the books are fully integrated, um, hopefully the whole corona situation has passed, well, passed as much as it can be, we'll look on this situation right now and we'll reflect on it as a potential money-making opportunity just as it was with corona. Mm. So I know it can be obviously depressing when people are looking at their portfolio and, you know, every 10, 15 minutes it's dropping £10, 15 pound and whatnot. But my, my advice to people would be delete the app for a while or not <laughs> go on the app for a while, come back in a week or so, a few weeks, a month. And then, you know, you genuinely will feel refreshed and you'll be sort of relishing the opportunity of going again, because I get that it's, it's frustrating when there are some people that have a lot of like low end players and they're in a situation where they don't want to sell these low end players, big loss, but then they don't have the funds to put more into the product and capitalize on the opportunities that are present. But I just feel like that's a really simple thing to do. And I, I did it. I just recently went on holiday and I feel like, you know, I switched off from FI for a while and I've come back and I'm not so frustrated. You've got to kind of take a step back. You know, there's something else out there, whether that's exercise, whether that's another passion that you have, go and focus on that for a little while. Um, and I'm confident that, you know, FIAC, they'll do something in the long term, which will sort this all out. And, you know, all the stresses right now will sort of go away. But, mm. Yeah. Mm. Wise words. Machine? Yeah, I'm going to go with something that is totally unrelated. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, We've got polar opposites. You know, I feel like in these sort of situations when people need picking up, I personally will go to Instagram accounts, which are sort of showing memes. And uh, one of my favorites, which I would love you all to get involved in, it's called uh, Barry's Banter Bus. The tagline is BSC and Bantonomics. And there was a post I was scrolling through yesterday, which particularly tickled me. It's a picture of uh, Kim Kardashian. She's playing poker and she's got this pair of uh, sunglasses on. The front of the glasses are actually mirrored. So you can kind of see everything she's doing. And there's just a brilliant tagline underneath it that says, whenever you are feeling like a moron, just remember Kim Kardashian played poker with mirrored glasses. (laughs) So there's a... You know, there's just a little thing for a sense of a perspective that, to your point, Alpha, like, you know, it can be a bit of a shitty situation, but there's always sort of context to put it in. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's really good uh, <laughs> context to put it in. I think that the thing that I like is something that um, Sigmund and Sam F come and, and say on the podcast every time they, they appear is that we as humans, naturally, from a behavioral standpoint, we are, we get two times more angry or we are we feel kind of loss or losing 
twice as badly as we do feel winning. So you've got to always marry up that you're going to feel twice as bad about something going the wrong way as you would something going well. So when we were all rockets before this kind of blip, everyone was feeling good. Just think about that in parallel to how you're feeling right now. And right now you're feeling naturally twice as bad as you were feeling the good feelings when we were rockets up, if that all makes sense. So uh, yeah, I just try and think about that kind of psychological aspect of it as well. FI Jim, did you both enjoy the North London derby? I'm going to delete this question. I've actually unfollowed FI Jim after this question. So have I, so have I, absolutely. Um, he might even be going for a muting if he tries to retaliate <laughs> after this. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll sweep that one under the carpet. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think in the... Uh, pantheon of disappointing Arsenal results this one is definitely up there just yeah. because the team we're facing was so terrible we still <laughs> managed to just mess things up in defence and you know, lose 2-1 um, yeah, honestly it's, it's go on just one of the, it was one of those games where you look at the league table and we're 8th they were 10th it's honestly such an irrelevant game but for some reason you know the emotions behind it you just care so much and I remember watching the game and I was just thinking we are so much better than them how are we not beating them yeah. and in the end I just feel like we simply got Mourinho which is even harder to take because these last I, actually, few weeks, I actually quite liked it because it means that there's some Spurs fans out there that think he might be the guy for like the long term um, That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, now everyone's going to be like, yeah, he can stay there forever. And I'm like, sure. You know, he can, yeah, yeah. He can stay there forever. Uh, unintended consequence. Yeah. And, uh, the extra three points that just saves his career and then confines him to another uh, number three years of management under him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be brilliant. I mean, Alpha, we've got quite a couple of questions here from Jordan Kenny about Jordan Kenny. I want to know what, what the beef surprise? is here. What a surprise. <laughs> so hey. he says, why did you pump Thiago as an excellent hold at 29 until the Euros and World Cup and then proceed to just selling Neymar was feasible due to age despite just turning 28 the Kaiser says Alpha do you think you and Jordan Kenny will get married one day so run me through it because I've spoken to both of you separately Jordan's part of the discord he was horrified to find out that you were coming on the pod he was great on the pod yeah. himself you've been great so yeah. far so what, what's going on yeah. there no as in like you know it's, it's all banter I feel like Jordan's a guy that likes banter I love it as well there's no hard feelings in any of the chat that's going on but evidently we've gotten a bit of a riffraff <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, and I think I'm going to be a bigger man when I say this as well. I did fully believe that Thiago would be a better PB hold than Kimmich. That's confirmed. However, I am a man, and I can put my hands up and say, you know what, I completely look like an idiot here. And since buying Thiago, I've actually instant sold him, and I have bought Kimmich. So it's a funny story. In terms of the question directly about why saying, you know, Thiago was a good buy and Neymar not a good buy. I think it's, it's important to bear in mind sort of the situation at hand. So obviously Thiago was something like £2.50. Neymar is up at £10. And the main point that I made was, you know, given post-div announcement where people are so sort of upset and, you know, goalkeeper divs have just, be, just been introduced and, you know, the div increase was nowhere near what people envisaged. I said that I could sort of understand and fathom why not necessarily why, but I could rationalise with people who were selling sort of older PB-based players as opposed to younger ones. And, you know, people can agree with that, people can disagree. It doesn't necessarily mean that if I owned Neymar right now, I would be selling him. I just said I could sort of understand it. So, you know, people were looking for ways to get money. That's kind of first and foremost. There were some people that couldn't have more money to put into the product and they wanted to free up funds. Now, Neymar is older, and I put that in kind of like quotation marks, at 28, and he's priced at £10. So, you know, when you're looking at other PB-based players, whether that's the Trent, 
the Brunos, etc. They've got quite a few years on Neymar. And also to bear in mind with that, Neymar is a very injury-prone player. So I don't get me wrong, he's amazing for PB. I can't argue with that. I mean, I did even did a premium spreadsheet, which I know that Jordan absolutely loved, where <laughs> I highlighted how good sort of Neymar was. But I think it's just important to put in the context in the two situations. You know, I thought Thiago would be a good hold over the Bundesliga period up to the Euros. But, you know, the, the whole situation completely flipped on its head where he got an injury really early on. Um, he missed that whole period. They introduced a matching engine where it spreads, you know, sort of change the whole situation. And I just sort of said, you know, I can, I can understand what the situation is. And I think that something that's really important with this is, you know, not to take everything as it is in plain sight and sort of put a bit of context in the situation. So something that I will say about the whole situation here is, so I think it's important to sort of put a bit of context on the situation and to sort of reflect on maybe mistakes that were made in the past. So I got burnt with Thiago. Obviously, I bought him. He got injured. It was a struggle to sell him. So I think that maybe people have also been burnt with sort of similar players. I know that Ilicic right now, he's been struggling to get starts. People that would have bought Thiago would have been in the same sort of boat. So, you know, there's a chance if Neymar were to have, let's say, got a big injury, you might encounter the same problem that, you know, I've just spoken about. So it wasn't necessarily that I said you should sell Neymar. It was more so I could understand why people were selling Neymar. Yeah, no, it's it's also hard to get across like tone on Twitter. I know Jordan, for example, I know him quite well, met him in real life. He's a great guy when you speak to him in real life. On Twitter, people can appear blunt, even though they, they might not be blunt or be intending to be blunt, if that makes sense. So it's definitely an interesting one. And tone is very hard to get across on Twitter. It's very easy to be misunderstood. So hopefully you boys quash the beef and, uh, you know, have a chat soon. Um, yeah. We've got a question here from Run Fatboy Run who's a new FI Twitter account. I said he said he, uh, he's trying to lose weight by listening to the Figcast while he runs. So, uh, you know, hats off very nice. to you. Trying that, fair play. Maybe you need to make, it, make them a bit longer so you can run for longer. You are head of UEFA. You get two bribes by an unknown source. The first bribe is that you have to replace goalposts with jumpers. And the second bribe is to mix fans in stadiums like rugby. <laughs> Which bribe are you taking? For me, it's got to be goalposts for jumpers. I mean, if nothing else, just, just for the uproar that some kind of like goal line VAR decision, you know, would have. But also like, could you imagine if you're in a stadium surrounded by Spurs fans and then Mustafi falls over and gives Harry Kane another guilt edge chance? Like, no way would you want that. Yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably say the opposite. I said I'd go with the mixed fans in the stadiums, but for the, really? for the different sort of chaos. So could you imagine like a big derby game like Rangers versus Celtic or Arsenal Spurs? Could you imagine the sort of entertainment value that would be going on? Like it would be pure chaos. Now, obviously, you know, both of them would potentially, well, not potentially, they would definitely not work. But I just think it would be a bit more of a laugh, to be honest. <laughs> I think that would end up in, in absolute chaos. I'm going for the jumpers. I'm going for the jumpers. Yeah. Um, so too much chaos on the too team. Much to actually be in the crowd. No thanks. Yeah. Too much chaos. Yeah, to watch for a far would be great, but being yeah, in imagine, there, imagine being in a World Cup final and you've, you've just had a shot going over the jumper. You'd still going to have equal chaos there. It's like you're going to have one team screaming it was a goal, the other one screaming it wasn't a goal, and then it's like, how do you determine whether it was a goal or not? You're... Was it over the sleeve or was it over the cuff? Exactly, you're bang in trouble. Uh, all right, we've got some questions here all about the announcement. Obviously, Football Index had an announcement um, six days ago. Was it now? Did they? Uh, was it about? <laughs> <laughs> 
I was like, oh shit, I've got the wrong person on. Um, I mean, we, we've got a question here from FI Garden. I mean, first of all, let's, let's talk about it. You know, Alpha, what were your first impressions, first thoughts, first feelings about it and how have you felt since? Do you know what? My, my, like I said, I've only been on the on index properly for about six months. So this was my first real sort of announcement like this. Initially, when I first saw it, I actually thought it was a really good thing. You know, I think Team of the Month is, is amazing. I think it keeps things, it sort of rewards long-term performance. Well, not necessarily long-term, but it rewards kind of more than just one game performance. And, you know, with, with people like Kimmich in particular, he's someone who is now going to sort of be a favourite for those sort of dividends. Whereas, he was always just narrowly missing out on um, match day divs. And I think the whole sort of team of the month aspect, I like it. Then moving on, I think that, you know, goalkeeper divs, I think they did need to be introduced. So I like the fact that they've done that. And initially when I first saw things, I thought, you know, this is a positive announcement. But then, you know, when you're actually sort of contextualizing things and you're looking at the div increase and you're seeing, you know, minimal, minimal dividend increases for match days, I didn't actually understand how bad sort of the market implications would be. You know, there's been such huge sell-offs all over the place because obviously as the top end come down, the low end come down, there's been like a mass loss of confidence. And I think the main sort of summary point I'd say about it is I, I think that they got some things right, but it was at the expense of other elements. And, you know, I think that what the, what FI have done in introducing the goalkeeper divs and the team of the month is a, is a great and positive change but they needed to do it with sort of a generous PB payout in terms of gold, silver and bronze days as well. So, you know, yeah, I mean, on reflection, I think that it's quite disheartening, but my initial thoughts were, were actually quite positive, but, you know, it shows, shows how sort of little I know and sort of what, what inexperienceness mm. last year, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the main overall sentiment has been bad and it's been bad because it feels like a, a layer of trust has been ripped out from underneath us. And I guess... Like a lot of what you've just explained, Alpha resonates with that. Machine, I want to get your thoughts, what your first thoughts when you saw the announcement and how have you felt since? Yeah, I think I'd agree with, with most of that really. I think when you break down the different pieces of the announcements, I think in isolation, they were generally all good things. You know, to Alpha's point, like goalkeepers was kind of necessary. If you didn't have any real path to dividends for goalkeepers beyond a clean sheet, then it sort of begs the question, why were they on the platform in the first place? So that was long overdue. Team of the month, I think, is is really good because it, you know, as you said, it, it just rewards the players which are doing well on a consistent basis, which is really sort of the core part of the product. But I think where where it went wrong was really around the comms and the, the sequencing of things. Because I think releasing the announcement on goalkeepers and team of the month in the context of like a very small increase in base dividends just didn't really have the effect that they, they wanted. And if anything, it had a negative effect. And I think they could have dealt with that a lot better by maybe delaying those to later in the year and focusing on just keeping the core of the product the same. Now, you can argue that a lot of that was done because expectations were too high. There's an element of that for sure. I think people got way ahead of themselves. But, but just, just to play devil's advocate there, Machine, was that warranted? You know, when you've got the CEO coming out and saying, we're gonna, we want to push this to a billion pound market cap as soon as possible. They've said that in the past. The 10x notions, the hyping up on social media, the gifts of Football Index Twitter accounts, the actual official Twitter account kind of hyping up the afternoon, like, you know, what a glorious day. Adam coming out and saying, you know, this is, uh, we've just finished tweaking it using words like substantial generous but sensible was some of that warranted 
Yeah, I think it's a bit it's a bit of both. Certainly the way that they communicated things just fed and fueled those expectations for all the reasons you mentioned. And they probably should have reined that in before. You know, they did try and, and wheel it back when he came out of that tweet saying, you know, you have to sort of manage expectations. But I think the horse have bolted at that point. Yeah, and, and I think that tweet did no good, did it? Like it was a weird bit of comms and it was weirdly written. I'd probably say badly written. And yeah, I mean, here I think, we are. I think, you know, a lot of the, the unintended consequences may seem obvious now, but at the time may have been hard to foresee. So, you know, the, the big thing that's happened, obviously, is that relative value, fair value or intrinsic value, or whatever you want to call it, that has shifted to a huge degree towards goalkeepers. And because there are these liquidity problems in the market, the only way that people could get money out was, of course, from shifting away from the premiums. So the impact that had was complete stagnation in the market. So from a, imagine you're a new user and you come in and all you see is goalkeepers you've never heard of flying through the ticker. You go and you look at the players that you have heard of, the big names, and they're down 2%. You know, it's, really, it's really not a good look. It isn't. It isn't. And I think, yeah, it's not a great look at all for, for anyone on the index to give players that have no ownership, essentially, that much value was a really strange move. And I've got a question yeah. here from F.I. Gardner. Why do you think goalkeeper dividends weren't brought in straight away? Machine, did you have any thoughts on why they're waiting until the, the Premier League season starts next season for, for dividends to be allowed? I mean, yeah, we, I we risk, I suppose, players, goalkeepers bubbling away too much by then. Yeah, I, th- I think it, it's a really tricky one. So as I said, if they didn't have any intrinsic value, why are they on the platform in the first place? So it was massively overdue. And I don't think anyone could have predicted those consequences that we've now seen. So there's an element of unfortunate there. But if you were to go back in time and, and rethink how they did this, I think they would have had to just up the dividends in the same structure. And then when they review things and introduce goalkeepers and this team of the month, do it separately. Because right now we're in, we're in such a tough position where liquidity has dried up, it's shifted towards the goalkeepers. So then when you, new users are coming in, it's going to be really hard for them to understand how the product works in what is already quite a complicated product. Yeah, I mean, just to just sort of add on from that, I personally can't comprehend why goalkeeper divs weren't included from the off. You know, it feels like to me, as Machine said, that, you know, this has been a change that's been inevitable. You know, it's, it's something that which is required for completeness. Bringing in dividends for goalkeepers is just something which has, has been overdue. Mm. And, you know, when you're explaining Football Index, I used to explain Football Index to, to my friends and they'd sort of say, well, well, you know, you've got Alisson here. He's one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Why is he so cheap? At, you know, however many P he was, 70p. And I'd be like, you know, that's because he was previously competing with defenders for dividends and the goalkeeper's never quite sort of compete with them on a, on a standard basis and you know it was something that was really hard for outsiders and newcomers to sort of, they sort of get their head around so for me I can't quite understand why goalkeepers were never introduced goalkeeper dips were never introduced from the off and you know if they've made this change and people are flocking towards goalkeepers now I can't understand why they're not included right now I think maybe there's a bit of uncertainty surrounding sort of like the, the intrinsic price of a goalkeeper and what they should actually be priced at but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things where I think this was a mistake on FI's behalf, in my opinion. Mm. And I think that the best way that they can deal with this is to sort of come out publicly and not necessarily admit that they made a mistake, but, you know, to rectify the situation maybe by 
sort of uh, doing some sort of double dividends announcement, increasing IPDs, tweaking the dividend structure, announcing that, you know, in the future, they're going to review the dividend structure. And this is sort of temporary until the COVID situation passes, because, you know, they're trying to be conservative as a business, which I think if that's the case would make total sense. But I think that, you know, I can't really understand why goalkeeper divs aren't included now. And, you know, I think that, that there's... I mean, I think, I think we've, we've got a consensus here among the three of us. You know, we're three different types of traders. We've been on the platform at different amounts of times. We all agree, I think, from what I've said on the Notificar section with Panda, from what I've said to, to people on Discord and Twitter, that dividends for goalkeepers make sense. If we were rebuilding this product from the ground up, you'd have goalkeepers in it. For the life of me, while, why they've been introduced now, I'm, it's baffling. I, I genuinely I can't, I can't give you even a morsel of explanation as to Agreed. why they've been introduced right now. And for me, that's a big worry. I don't really understand. I can't imagine that many people on the survey that was only done by 3000 people, which I think was also quite disappointing, which not a lot of people have discussed, that people wanted Goalkeeper dividends and, and a goalkeeper category, I really don't think that was at the forefront of people's minds when we were talking about the MD and PB matrices, when we were talking about dividend reviews, when we were talking about certainty, when we were talking about sell orders. I can't for the life of me think that many people put goalkeepers. And I think just, just to add, I think that if you were looking at it from FI's point of view, goalkeeper dividends were probably on their list, but they were probably like 14th or 15th down on their list in terms yeah. of priorities. And then I think when they looked at it, they would have been like, well, if we're giving a group of players that have literally no ownership, that only about 96 of them are on the platform that can win dividends, we need to do that mm. in tandem with a substantial increase in the other dividends, the core dividends, to make it so the comparative value isn't completely watered down, which is what we're seeing right now, isn't Definitely. it? Definitely, yeah, completely. I mean, you summed it up perfectly. And I just feel exactly as you said, this can't have been something that was sort of like, the. it seems as if, you know, goalkeeper dividends have been the main focal point of this dividend announcement, as well as team of the month, obviously. But that shouldn't have been the case. As you said, it should have been sort of with a simultaneous sizable increase, because it seems as though the, the top dogs at FI, they're kind of quite out of touch with the market. And this is sort of just like highlighting that because they didn't quite understand the repercussions of what such an announcement would do. And obviously, when you're so heavily invested, like some people are, the financial implications of this sort of lack of judgment, it can actually be quite severe. You know, I'm sure there's some people that have got like big money invested in the top end. They've lost a sizable amount in the product. And, you know, it's sort of like quite disheartening because their trust and loyalty with FI has sort of in this dividend announcement been a bit thrown back in their face. So yeah, I mean, I don't want to slag the product off too much, but I think it's one of those things where they've made a mistake and they can easily rectify it. But you know, it's, it's not something that's going to just go away, especially with the lack of confidence and lack of liquidity. It needs to be addressed for sure. Yeah, I think there's probably, there's an optimistic answer to why they may have done this. And there's also a very cynical answer. You know, the truth is probably somewhere between the two. You know, I think a cynical answer is maybe... Maybe they've done some kind of sensitivity analysis on their own balance sheet and they've realized the sort of extent of the expected liabilities they'll have for paying out consistently in the top ends. We know that's where most of the capital is, is uh, allocated. So like maybe they've realized that they need to shift some of that liability further down and sort of push out whatever that will be. That's a very sort of cynical answer. I think the more optimistic answer of why they may have done this is, you know, let's say they are going for a big marketing push and you're getting these new users coming onto the platform. And let's say they're taking a sort of very measured formulaic approach to how they think about intrinsic value. 
they're gonna, the first thing they'll do is they'll look at goalkeepers if they don't have these dividends and they'll say, okay, these are worthless. Why are they on there? And it sort of instantly loses a bit of credibility. So maybe what they were doing is they were gearing up for this big marketing push and making sure that there is actually value across the entire platform. I don't, like as we sort of talked about, I, the timing is weird and it's hard to, to think of a reason why they pushed it all out in this, in this one thing together. But I think there's probably some element of those two perspectives. But are they going to use goalkeepers in a big marketing push in a way, in that way, machine? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they would use them in a marketing push. But if you have a new user who's coming on, and they're going to take a sort of financial approach where they say, okay, what is my expected yield on all of these different assets, which are players? You'll go through the same names will, will rise to the top of the lists and you go to goalkeepers and you say, well, these players are worthless. You know, what is the point in them? Now you can make a case that actually a lot of these players are valuable, in some cases, very valuable. So now in theory, every player that is on the platform, apart from the bottom end of players who are just going to, you know, never get any dibs at all. Across all positions, there is value. Mm. Yeah, I think in agreement that it makes sense to have goalkeeper dividends. I just, the timing before a massive marketing push when they're going to be marketing players like Neymar and Harry Kane, like I just, it makes very little sense to me. Yeah, and look, it's definitely a comms angle. Yeah, like I, I could be in the wrong here. I could be completely wrong, but from the kind of consensus I've seen in the community, I'm not sure I am. We've got a question here from Football Index Focus. FI has been through difficult times before. So should traders be reassured that Football Index come through this tough time stronger as before? Or is this time different? Like Alpha, I suppose you've only been on this six mm. months properly, but you, you went through the toughest time ever on Football Index with COVID. So mm. how does this compare to that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a weird one because, you know, COVID was kind of like put, put a halt to football as a whole. And, you know, FI simply, they just sort of increased media, which meant the top end flew. And it sort of shifted money away from the low end up to the top end who were winning media. And you sort of just saw like a whole concentration of money go into the top end. This is slightly different because obviously, you know, I feel like people are losing faith with football index as a whole. There are some people which are sort of just getting frustrated. And then you sort of consider what's going on right now. And, you know, the whole product is shifting. There's no longer, you know, just a market buy price and an instant sell price set by FI. It's now completely different where football index are just facilitating buyers and sellers. And they're not actually setting any sort of prices themselves. So the whole aspect of football index is changing. And that's why I think that this has sort of been such a big mistake because they're going through a massive change where they're implementing the matching engine and, you know, bids and offers are coming in. It's important that they get the small things right. So, you know, I think that people's lack of confidence and frustration is justified. But again, it all comes down to beliefs. And I personally believe that, you know, in the long term, the platform will survive. I'm confident we'll get through this stronger. You know, I've seen some comments, I think it was from FBI Trader, who just said this is sort of like a, essentially a correction period where, you know, you've had huge periods of rockets and now, and now players' prices are sort of coming back to their more intrinsic value or they're sort of being shifted to a new sort of level. And, you know, I think that's maybe a possibility. But I just think, you know, that we're one announcement away, which is, you know, doubling dividends. It's increasing IPDs. It's, it's something which can completely just get football index back on the road again. And, you know, I've seen recently that that was about £4.7 million taken out of the market in the, in the last week, which 
is that that's the first time I've seen something like that since, you know, in the last six months, even in during the Corona period, it was nothing like this. So I think we are at a massive crossroads, but I'm confident in myself. And I do think that, you know, we, we will come through this stronger. And, you know, I, I think that it's, it's an opportunity for people to sort of reflect on the situation with football index, have people put in more money than they necessarily should have, you know, that now that portfolios are down and some players are down in certain holds, maybe people will question, you know, should I be actually biting off more than I can chew here? And, you know, should I only put in what I'm prepared to happily lose? I can't remember who it was. I think you had a guest on a while ago and he said something along the lines of, you know, I, I don't have much money in FI. Um, I have it. Uh, an amount of money which I'm happy with. Rob Cheese, lose, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Rob Cheese, right? And he said something like, you know, what I lose, I lose, and what I make, I make. And, you know, that I think is a, a totally fair observation on the situation. And then you don't get so caught up, but, you know, myself included. I'm sure there's many out there. People have seen the growth on FI, seen the earnings potential on FI, and they've put so much money into FI and sort of used it as just an investment vehicle, which, you know, might be wrong. And, you know, it's, it's a period for people to sort of reflect on the situation at hand and maybe. You know, once they get out of this situation, the market recovers. If people would sort of take back a bit of capital and then think to themselves, you know what, I'm not going to be so sort of engrossed in FI and invest what I can like, afford to lose, then, you know, there's so many different outcomes of the situation. Mm. Yeah, I would say I definitely still have faith in them. It's not a blind faith, but I think there's a couple of elements that need to come to fruition that are going to really, really help. I think the first one is there is going to be a big marketing push. Now, as we talked about, the marketing push needs to come in a context of the product working and doing the things we wanted to do. But I think it's hard to, to underestimate the, the effect that might have. I can't remember who did this analysis, but I saw in the timeline, someone was, was writing about the share of wallet um, that FI is looking to gain. And there's a lot of low-hanging fruit they could potentially they could potentially bring in. But then the second and the, and the main thing why I'm keeping the faith is that, you know, right now there isn't really a functioning market and it's hard to underestimate the impact that a lack of liquidity is going to have. You know, at the moment, it's really still, it's a one-sided market. You know, my capital is, is tied up there because I'm not going to be hitting a bid on a spread that's 30, 35%. And I think when both sides of the marketplace do come in, that's going to have a huge impact in increasing liquidity. And I think even, you know, even the, the new market makers that are coming in to buy up some of these long sell queues, I think that's going to have an impact. Now, at the moment, you don't really see much beyond that capital being recycled back into goalkeepers. But I think with the spreads as they are at the moment, you're starting to see this now go back into, into the premium holds. And then when both sides of the marketplace are opened, I think that's going to be, it's going to be a game changer. Mm. We got a question here from Mort's question. What do people do with the bottom end of the market now? And is selling part of the matching end in going to sort the spreads out in your opinions? Good guess. Look forward to this one. So a bit of praise. But yeah, I mean, we all anticipated, I think when me and Panda were doing our predictions, we said IPDs can't really increase by 100%. They can't stay the same. So something will come in that will try and help all ends of the market, whether it's a long-term dividend, a team of the month or, or something like that. We got one bit right, but we didn't get it right that it would help essentially all ends of the market. It's going to be the very best players that do benefit from this. And without context, that's amazing, right? Because 
FI have the best players at the top of the tree. And from a marketing perspective, from a market standpoint, that makes sense. The players with the most demand, with the most dividend returns, with the most future dividend returns are nearer to the top of the table. That makes sense. But if you add the context that is in the current state of the market where the lower end is becoming harder and harder to trade, and we always hate the lower and higher end. I, I don't think there's a lower and higher end. There's just cheaper and more expensive players, but there's good value and bad value across the whole of the market. It is becoming increasingly more difficult to find liquidity with cheaper players. So what is the turning point now for the machine? Like, Where do FI go from here in terms of trying to instill liquidity in that side of the market? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really tricky one. You know, there is, there's value across all positions now, but there's a huge amount, huge proportion of the players who have very little intrinsic value. How can you resolve that? I think when we have the full marketplace in, that'll help a little bit and you'll, you know, you'll get the IPD players starting to move again. But I don't think it's necessarily their obligation to increase liquidity across the entire market. And when you sort of look at traditional financial markets, you know, you can buy shares in companies that don't trade very often and you may think or you may perceive there is value there, but it doesn't mean there is actually value. And you know, there's no guarantee that you you'll get your money back. So I think in this instance we have to remember that it is it is a gambling platform. And for that portion of the market, it's probably just going to be the case that you're much less likely to, to get your money back. And you know, if you do invest in those moonshots which are low priced, they have sort of a risk structure attached to it that was actually appropriate. You know, we saw that Antonio had that amazing rise to win to win PB. It's very hard to predict that happening. And for the people that were there and were patient and were sort of sitting on that hold, mm. um, you know, that's brilliant. But I think it's hard to expect to see that across the entire market. Yeah, I mean, uh, you summed it up nicely there, Machine. I agree with you in the sense, you know, there's no divine right for FI to sort of bail people out of poor mm. bets per se. But I also think that there, it's important to put a bit of context on the situation. You know, there were some people that might have bought certain players at 30p when there was no matching engine. That was literally, you know, people wanted to buy a player off you for 30p, they could. If you wanted to buy more of that player for 30p, you could. And that was the sort of bet that you were taking. So if, if you know, a player did well and they shot up 2p or 3p or whatever, you were making sort of, I mean, obviously after commission, you weren't making much money, but you know, if they shot up 5p, you were making sort of like a, a fair bit of money there. You know, it might be 10%, 7%, 8%, whatever. Since the matching engine has come in, you know, spreads on these sort of players, if you're talking about 30 or 40p players, they can be as like, you know, the instant sale price or the sell price can be as low as 10p. And you know, the likelihood of people actually selling these players at even like a merely a break-even point, let alone like, you know, a 10, 20% loss is very slim. So I do think, and you know, I, I feel bad for the people that have invested very heavily in those sort of, that sort of end of the market. But I do think that, you know, this will encourage people to diversify their portfolios going forward. You know, it's going to be something where maybe they might have to take a loss in the short term, but they can reflect on maybe a mistake that they made right now, which is, you know, going too heavy on the low end and spending more time researching the top end where they still think that there might be value. And actually buying those players because, you know, there, there are people that might start off with £500, £300, £200. And they might think the only way I can make money here is by finding the next Mbappe, a 50p player that turns into a £1 player or a £2 player or whatever. But I think the more research that you do in FI and the more time that you spend on it, you actually realize that there is still a lot of value in the top end. And you can still make the same money, if not more, by investing in the top end 
than you can in the low end because, you know, the, the risks attached and the liquidity at the top end is much greater. So, you know, it's, it's a very tough point. People that are stuck with low end, I mean, in my opinion, I don't think you should be buying them now because, you know, it's, it's, it's risky. But if you're very confident on a certain low end player that you think they are still underpriced and that, you know, especially if they're young, you think that in a couple of years they can turn good, then this price that you're looking at might right now, if they're a 50p player and you can pick them up on bid at 21, 22, 25p, if you still believe that the fundamentals are all there and that this player can go on to you know, double in price, increase in price by 20, 30%, then do it. But yeah, I think that FI do need to do something to increase the liquidity at that low end. Mm-hmm. We'll move on. And just before we do, I need to plug index gain. So if you guys don't know what index gain are, they are a third-party data provider. Awesome, awesome, awesome third-party data provider. So if you go over to indexgain.co.uk and use FIG2025 quid off your first month, uh, you can also go for the semi-annual plan, which gives you one month free, then another five quid off on top of that with the FIG2020 code. The top team of the month winners and dividend earners for the 1920 season are now available for free on Indexgain, as well as every team of the month so far. So if you head over to indexgain.co.uk forward slash blog, further details. And then if you go for their premium deal. Use fake 2020, get yourself five quid off on indexgain.co.uk. So we've got a question here from FILL, who was a brilliant, brilliant guest a couple of weeks ago with Rob Cheese, right? Some great questions here. So I will keep it simple. What's your favorite aspect of Football Index? Alpha, why don't you go first? Um, I think this is a really simple answer from me. I like the sheer fact that you are able to make money from essentially doing something you love. You know, you buy players on FI that you essentially think will be better players or will have improved over a three-year period or, you know, over the rest of their career. And I think that's just, it's just a really nice concept. Like when you're watching football, naturally, you're, you're sort of formulating predictions on this player. You know, when I was watching Newcastle, I would look at Alan St. Maxim and I would think, you know what, this guy looks quite good. And all you're doing by FI is sort of taking a bet on this player over the long term, which, which is different to any sort of football betting that you might do unless you're doing sort of a season-long bet or an individual award-based bet and making money from it. So I just think it really, the whole, the sheer concept of FI and, you know, what it stands for, it just gives you a chance to make money from watching football. I think that's, that's it for me. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say the same thing. I think it's just, it's this incredible mix of all of the cool stuff you get with fantasy football. You can also make money from it. And it also, I think it helps you enjoy the games a lot more. You know, you, you may have done some research into a player you found who's playing in, playing in French football and makes you want to watch some bottom of the table French team that you've never maybe even heard of before but you've identified a player through some kind of data analysis that you think has has some kind of intrinsic value. It just makes like actually watching experience and, and you have you have skin in the game. It makes it that much more enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add on from that, you know, I remember when the Bundesliga restart was um, about to gear up and a lot of my friends, you know, they were happy because we all love football and whatnot. But those are my friends that were invested in Football Wing Index and had these sort of Bundesliga players in their portfolio. We sort of had that extra sort of motivation. I remember, you know, you're watching a game, you're seeing Werner do something or Ben Sabini or whoever it might be, Kimmich. And, you know, you have that sort of extra sort of bit of passion about the game and you can watch a Stuttgart versus Mainz game. Well, actually, you can't because they're not in the same division. You could watch a Wolfsburg versus Frankfurt game, let's say, which, you know, is, is a, not the most relevant of games. And you're so sort of, engrossed in it because you've got let's say two Frankfurt players and a Wolfsburg player so it just makes football so much more enjoyable and obviously you know the main point about it all is your bet's not done at the final whistle it's just part of the road Mm. 
Mm. Yeah, I think really great points by both of you. We've got a question here from Luar Luar. Uh, Machine, you might want to take this first. What do you think the average yield should be of players? Yeah, I thought this was a, was a really good question, actually. I think it's particularly important in the context of them wanting to bring in sort of more financial or larger scale investors. If you come from that world and what they're promising them is, is some kind of yield, then the sort of yields they'll be used to you know, is if you can get a sort of six, seven, eight percent yield on an asset class or a series of asset class which has minimal volatility, then you know they'd really bite your hands off for it. So I think you know to answer this question, I think the average should really represent the different types of assets that exist inside football index. So in the financial world, you know you have you have equities, you have bonds, you have commodities, and you have currencies. All of those have some kind of yield attached to them, but they also have like a level of volatility or risk attached to them. So I think when we think about football index, we should really use that kind of framing. You know, there are different types of players who should have different yields that represent the inherent risk amongst them. Now, if you're just going to go and buy effectively an index tracker, then that yield should average out. And I think something around 15%, 15% 15%, 15 to 20% is really fair. But within that, you're going to have a huge amount of variation. So if, if, you, if you're speaking to an investor and you tell them about a potential yield, the first thing they'll say to you is, okay, what's your risk-adjusted return? There's a concept called a Sharpe ratio, which is essentially the return you're getting on the investment divided by the standard deviation of that return or the volatility mm. of the investment. So when you apply that sort of lens to football index, you're going to get very different results. And to go back to, to the discussion of the bottom end, so yeah, sure, you could get a 25% return on some of those players if you get lucky. But the standard deviation, the volatility of that return is going to be huge, which means your sharp ratio, your risk-adjusted return is going to be a lot lower. That's super, super interesting. Super interesting. I agree with you. Between 15 and 20% seems relatively reasonable. I think people coming from the financial services, from the orthodox investment vehicles and, and people who are match betters, for example, people who are professional gamblers, the okay, commissions are probably... To, go on, sorry. Bring, I think the other thing to bring up there as well is, is the wider context of yield that's available outside of this. You know, if they want to become an alternative asset platform, then you're going to be competing against different types of products. But right now, and probably for a number of years, we're really in a world where yield has gone to zero, in some instances, it's yeah. gone below zero. It's really, really low. So if you can talk about providing you know, 15% yield and you can demonstrate that while there's volatility within those returns, the sort of aggregate number, you effectively have a tracker fund. If that is giving you a decent sharp ratio on a yield of like 15 to 20%, I think that's going to be really compelling to people. Yeah, I think personally, you you two have summed it up perfectly there. I think I don't have much more to add on that, but I think obviously, you know, the average yield, it it should differ depending on so many factors, you know, the age of the player, what league they're playing in, what stage of their career they're in. Um, There's going to be a great, a great disparity between the the highest yielders, of course, and the lowest yielders. And I suppose, Machine, one of the things we didn't discuss, you didn't mention was the fact that we didn't have a lot of the players on the index maybe shouldn't be there, one, and two, some of them didn't have any intrinsic value, so aka goalkeepers. So in terms of having a much more realistic idea of the average yield across the whole platform that would actually be a lot easier to determine if you didn't have like 12p peruvian players that are retiring this summer or people like people who are already retired if that makes sense For sure yeah 
For sure, yeah. I mean, if like imagine you were going to construct some kind of stocks and shares portfolio, and you're you're trying to figure out, you know, what is the yield for these different types of assets? Well, you can go to well-established, well-known companies where you can understand what the cash flow is, and there's a relatively predictable return on a relative low volatility. That's your Lionel Messi. That's your Cristiano Ronaldo. There's an added dimension that, of course the value of that bet goes to zero eventually. But that's kind of an analogy you can use. But then you can compare to, okay, well, I want more yields. I'm going to go invest in something that's a lot higher risk. Give me something like a high yield bond. That's going to be like a really crappy company where you don't really understand how their funding structure works, but they're going to compensate you by giving you a healthy yield for taking that risk. You know, and that would be those real bottom end players. You're like, yeah, you could get a 30, 40% return, but there's really no guarantees. And then I think the other interesting dimension is that for good reason, youth it has an extra value inside FI. Mm. So the analogy for an investment there would be, okay, I'm actually going to put some of my capital in a young startup. Their cash flows don't exist right now, or they're very low, but I'm being sold on this vision of them growing to become a really established company and then grow into a sort of dividend returner in sort of three or four years. So there's an inherently a lot more risk there, but there's also a promise of those healthy cash flows down the road. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think that's a really good point. And the reason why I think that there's sort of so much value in youth like, you know, especially your 18, 19, 20 year olds is something you have to bear in mind is over the length of their career, you know, if you're talking about Mason Greenwood, the Mbappes, Sancho's, et cetera, et cetera. From a football index perspective, the likelihood is there is going to be numerous dividend increases over that player's career. Mm. So, you know, when I was talking beforehand about Neymar, the likelihood is, you know, dividends are not going to be necessarily too dissimilar from what they are now when sort of Neymar's coming to the end of his career or Messi, for example. You can semi-predict a range of where the dividends will be when they retire, just using a bit of common sense. Whereas for Greenwood, for Foden, for all of these sort of elite players who, you know, will think will dominate football for the next 10, 12 years or so, in six, seven years' time or eight years' time, that the dividend payouts in football index could be completely different to what they are now. You know, they could be much more. They could be paid out in a, a completely different way. So I think that those players, those younger elite players, they have that sort of dimension priced into them. And I think that that's a really sort of fundamental consideration when buying those players and when trying to estimate how many dividends they'll return over their career. Mm. Some really, really fascinating chat there from both of you. Really great stuff. We've got one last question before a little ad to read here. Uh, Daniel Greenfield, if Manchester United miss out on fourth and in turn a Champions League spot, how do you think the prices of the blue chip United players will be affected or won't they? And is your answer unique to Man United or would it hold true for any other top four or six teams in the same scenario? I think that's probably the most interesting dynamic currently in the Premier League, isn't it, Alpha, in terms of whether or not United will get Champions League ahead of either Leicester or Chelsea. Looks like likely that it will be Leicester rather than Chelsea considering their win last night. But there's going to be a really interesting situation there. Does it change United's transfer plans? Does it mean that someone like Paul Popper wants to say a lot of interesting dynamics here? Yeah, I mean, personally, in terms of answering that question, I actually think it will do, it will benefit the, the, the players that miss out on Champions League, you know, even if it's uh, Chelsea, Leicester or United. If they drop into the Europa League, number one, every game day is a goal day. 
Number two, they will be playing against worse opposition. And number three, the likelihood of advancing to the late stages of the competition is much higher. Do you know, with the Europa League, you have six group games, which are all gold days. You've got obviously two games in the round 32, two in round 16, quarterfinals, semifinals and the final, which I calculate to be roughly 15 gold days. Now, in the Champions League, it's not quite the case. So from a dividend earning perspective, if, if I'm holding Bruno Fernandes or you know, Mason Greenwood and whatnot, as long as they are playing in those group stages, I think that there's a real good dividend earning potential throughout the Europa League. Whereas the same can't quite be said from a Champions League perspective. Mm. So I actually think that those players are more valuable. Maybe, of course, you know, for the club's financials, you know, United will be missing out on certain money from not qualifying to, for the Champions League. And, you know, that's got those sort of dilemma to it. But from a purely FI perspective, I actually think that, you know, a team that are favourites to win the Europa League if they then drop into it, but, you know, aren't necessarily favourites for the Champions League. I think that it can be really beneficial to hold those sort of players. You know, if you're talking about in this year, the United players, I think they're going to go the distance in the Europa League. And I think they'll, they stand a really good chance of winning it. I haven't looked at the odds, but I'm sure they'd be in and I around think they're favorites, probably favourites, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, either them or Inter. So, you know, you've got a whole heap of gold days ahead of you. Um, and on a normal basis, I know this year it's single leg quarterfinals, semifinals and whatnot, but on a normal basis, you'd have two legs in those games. Yeah. Gold days from quarterfinals onwards. So I actually think, in terms of pricing, I'm looking at the sort of teams that will be playing in the Europa League. And I think that that's sort of a good opportunity to make money. I mean, the same goes for Madison. If he ends up dropping out of the Champions League into Europa League spots, I actually think that does him good. Because I think that the chances of him earning divs or any Leicester player, in fact, or any Chelsea player, in fact, I think their div earning potential actually goes up. Mm. I think there's something interesting about what types of players play more minutes in Europa League. Does Bruno Fernandes play that many minutes in the Europa League? He probably plays every minute of a Champions League game. So mm. there's so many little nuances, isn't there, that you have to account for. That's Machine, true. any thoughts on uh, from you from a Manchester United perspective? It's, it's definitely the most interesting dynamic from a Premier League standpoint in terms of the index, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I'd agree with all of those points. I think it's the nuance that gets really interesting. You know, on the one hand, maybe not being in the Champions League is going to reduce a little bit of media buzz. Probably not. So there could be a little bit of value taken off. But, you know, as you said, this means that there's a likelihood of going further in the competition. So when you think about what is the expected value of each of those players, there's the probability of winning dividends actually increases in that situation. Then, you know, the extra layers that you talked about is it doesn't mean you're more likely to be rotated. It has one of those sort of unintended consequences where maybe the better players, maybe the Brunos, will actually be pulled off more because they'll be rotated. So the better you are, actually, the proportional change in your value is going to be lower, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other dynamic, of course, like, does this mean that players are going to stay or leave? Like, if that changes the probability of a player leaving, then obviously their value changes dramatically. But for the other players, their value goes up. So I think it's a really tricky one. And you've just got to try and weight all these different factors and come up with an answer. And I think you're right on balance. I think the value probably goes up a little bit. Mm. Well, before we move on, I just need to remind you guys that this podcast is brought to you by The Athletic. They're a subscription-based sports news site delivering in-depth sports coverage. I have to thank every single person that's been subscribing and signing up using the Fig link because I, you know, I, can't, I can't say thank you enough. They're amazing, The Athletic. They're 
the amount of content on there is absolutely fantastic. The likes of David Dornstein, James Pierce, Sam Lee, Rafa Honigstein, amazing articles being written by amazing journalists and the information you get there is invaluable. If you're even a semi-serious FI trader or just a, a football and sports fanatic, then you do need to go for that subscription. And if you want 50% off your annual subscription, the best sports writing around, go to theathletic.co.uk slash fig. So that's theathletic.co.uk slash fig. And it comes out to about £2.49 a month for their annual deal, which is pretty much nothing. I mean, Alpha, what have you bought recently that cost more than £2.49? Some contact lens solution whilst I was in Marbella. I mean, it was a fortune. I think about six euros. Yeah. So I could have got a good few memberships for that. Yeah, I mean, contact lenses as a contact lens wearer myself, they are not cheap. They come out to like pretty much 70p a pop for like each eye for disposable mm. ones. So, I mean, yeah. I think I actually probably went and did that last night, went and played some basketball, took one contact lens out. It was cut in half. It was broken, so I couldn't use that. That's been 75p there or 80p, 90p, whatever you want to call it. And then had two, one for each eye. So that's, you know, £2.50 in itself. Mm. Machine, anything you've been buying? Uh, yeah, it's probably a little bit more than 250 but I bought um, a really good phone holder for my bike. So if you're ever riding a bike and you want to put your phone on the um, handlebars, there's a thing called a quad lock, which basically wow. drops on a handlebar and you chuck your phone straight on and you can actually use your phone while you're cycling. See, really- this is the type of shit that the, the fans are just going to be buying, you know? <laughs> water picks, <laughs> water flosses. Yeah, like where's the commission machine? You need to come with a proper business plan whenever you plug these kind of things. <laughs> Uh, the podcast is of uh, this episode is also sponsored by Index Track, the ultimate portfolio tracking tool. It automatically extracts the data from your football index account and provides you with a detailed analysis of your portfolio, showing your performance versus the market, your share, and your share and IPD expiry dates, and importantly, at this time, what your profit would be if you instant sold everyone. So head over to indextrack.co.uk and use the code FIG2020 for your first month free. I think Headhunter gave it glowing reviews. I've had a play around with it, it's fantastic. The guys over at Index Track are also a great bloke. So do check it out, indextrack.co.uk and use the code FIG2020 for your first month free. So buzzing, Paul, I'm afraid to say after all these questions that are coming up all about modelling and a lot I've of the seen, stuff that I'm machine... I'm take a back seat here. I think I'm me on. and you might as well just sign <laughs> off now, right? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, buzzing, Paul, how much care do we need to take when drawing conclusions from data gathered during the current football environment? How long does this period need to continue until we are forced to use its data to model future match day dividend scores? Easy questions for such a good guess. I mean, Alpha, you can probably have a crack at this and so can I. I mean, oh. have you notice much with the data during in a post-COVID world? To be honest with you, in, in terms of data, you know what, I actually haven't. I've sort of taken a bit of a backseat with the data for the meantime. I, I set up my portfolio for how I sort of wanted it to look for the next few years. And I'm just sort of topping up as and when I can and sort of taking advantage of the matching engine. So I haven't really done big sort of data analysis per se. But I do think that the game is very different right now in the current football environment, you know, with no fans, with five subs. And I think just sort of on a backseat level, it is very different. And it's something which we're going to have to bear in mind. So obviously no crowds, the five subs, what essentially it means is players that might sort of need that extra motivation from crowds and from noises, etc. They might not necessarily be performing as well as other players who have a lot of intrinsic motivation. I know it's, it's difficult to sort of put this together in an articulate way, but you know, one player that I will say, and sort of I hope that you can resonate with me here, is I was watching players like Kimmich, players like Bruno Fernandes, 
players like KDB. And when you watch them behind closed doors, their game is completely unchanged. Mm. So they play the way they play. You know, Bruno Fernandes, it might be 4-0, 5-0. And I see him pressing and just working like an absolute dog. Bayern Munich might be 3 or 4-0 up. And, you know, you see Kimmich just doing the very simple things. Touch and move, one-twos, very simple passes. Their game is sort of very same same so from an investment point of view and i'm looking to buy certain players just from sort of simple eye tests and observations i'll be looking to buy players that i don't think will necessarily be subbed off using five subs as just like a common theme and then at the same time i'll be looking for those players that i personally think have a really cool head and play the same game whenever they're playing behind closed doors so i know it's not much to add on this sort of modeling aspect but you know it's more so about sort of behavioral side of certain players and there's certain players which I look to buy given the fact that we're now behind closed doors as opposed to others. It's difficult to sort of put into words, but I hope you sort of get a gist of what I'm trying to say. Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things I really noticed straight away, I think when Bayern Munich played Dortmund and they won 1-0 with the Mm. the Kimmich lob, the reaction from the Bayern players, how passionate and excited they were by winning that. There was such a sense of relief, satisfaction, and they were all buzzing just as much as they would be if there were fans at the stadium. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that's that's like testament to the the, the players themselves individually. You can see Mm. that, you know, they've got to where they are. They're such good footballers because of the motivation behind them. And Mm. this is a separate point, but there was a bet. I'm not sure. I'm 99% sure this is still active. But there was a bet which was since the restart and it was prior to the Spanish League restart, both Real Madrid and Barcelona to go unbeaten for the remainder of the campaign. And I'm 99% sure. I think it was at like 10 or 12 to 1. And I'm, I think it's still active. Both teams haven't lost. And I think that that is sort of like um, evidence of the point that I'm trying to make, these players that are at the top elite teams um, that have that sort of intrinsic motivation and they are so hungry for success and trophies and whatnot they're the sort of players that you want to be buying when Mm. when you're looking at behind closed doors games because they already possess the sort of hunger and willingness to do well, which some players at other clubs may not necessarily have. So yeah. One of the other things is, I guess, players like David McGoldrick and Dominic Slanka who haven't scored Premier League goals all season, suddenly when the pressure's off and there's no fans, For sure, yeah. they look like world beaters. <laughs> it's quite yeah. funny to see, isn't it? Yeah. Machine, any thoughts on kind of how you've viewed the data, viewed the football post-COVID? Yeah, no, I think you both answered that question really well. And it's a similar way to how I would think about it. You've got to almost identify what are the factors that have changed. And it's all the things you've talked about. You know, it's there's no crowds. Does that affect performance? Maybe travel schedules are messed up. Maybe that disproportionately affects teams who are traveling a long way. Drinks breaks, I think, is another another aspect. Um, Five they, subs. Yeah, who can adapt to those new breaks that are showing up. And then, yeah, the big one is definitely the five subs because that has a huge effect for all the reasons we talked about. But I think, you know, another nuance there is that for the better teams who are scoring higher base levels of PB, maybe the better the player, the more likely they are to be taken off within that sort of 60 or 70 minute window, which makes it really hard to model stuff because you need that full 90 minutes. So Bruno is is the obvious example here. He's been consistently better than everyone else, but he's failed to gain PB divs because he's been turfed off after 60, 70 minutes sometimes. So I think, as you said, right, you're trying to find those players that are consistent and are able to adapt their play to the new circumstances, but aren't like so important to the team that they're more likely to be pulled off after 60 minutes. And from a modeling perspective, and I I don't want to get too technical. Please uh, do, please do. (laughs) But if you think about it, 
all you need to do to really measure that is by measuring time. So we've had this complete crazy pandemic event, which started in March. And there's a period between March and now where these circumstances have changed. So if you're thinking about modeling that, you can include what's called a time fixed effect in your models. So what that does is it basically says, okay, I want to isolate the effect of this crazy circumstance and event that's happening. And I want to see the the impact that's having when you're controlling for all other factors. It sort of begs the question, okay, well, when does this unprecedented period actually become the new normal. And you should be able to pick that up when you see that fixed effect that you might model actually adjusting over time. Not sure if that makes sense. That makes great sense. And I think you've, uh, you've, you've done really well to explain it in normal English there. We've got a question here from F.I. Pell. When analysing data or creating models, does the health of the market come into play or do you just concentrate on the individual player information machine? I think you, you've got to take this way, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll probably preface this answer by saying, you know, modeling can be like a, a real sort of catch-all statement. And there's, you know, modeling can mean many different things and can be applied to many different uses. There's a great quote by a statistician, I think it's Box, who says, you know, all models are wrong, some are useful. And the point being, right, you can apply these different techniques to different goals. So for this question is, I would probably isolate those two things. So if your goal is to measure, okay, what is the health of the market? What are kind of like the macro, what is the macro environment with which we're playing? And you'd have like one set of models that attempts to do that. So to go back to the world of finance, you know, an obvious example, a common example would be something called the risk on risk off indicator. The idea of that is it's measuring correlations between prices of different stocks and it's trying to get a gauge of how much risk aversion is there in the market. And when risk aversion is high or is it low, what types of stocks tend to outperform or underperform? So you could do something similar in the context of FI. You know, at the moment, risk aversion is probably huge because spreads have blown out and you know various reasons. Um, what you can do is you can build an indicator to say, okay, let's understand what the level of risk aversion is and let's see which players tend to do well in these different sort of levels of risk aversion. So that would be sort of measuring the health of the market. And there are lots of other examples you can do along that angle. In terms of individual player information, to me, that's a very separate modeling task or a very, very separate prediction task. And I can sort of get into the weeds of how I think about modeling PB at a player level, but I would sort of separate and isolate those two things. Awesome. Awesome. I think I'll just move on to the next question because I'm not sure how much me and Alpha could add to that. Can we have a basic explanation, this from Index Analyst, of the Bayesian theory behind the model, maybe with a coin flip or roulette example and how it applies to PB? So that's the first question. Why don't you answer that? Because I have no idea what he's just said. It's a perfect question for me, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Take it no, I'm joking. All, all yours, machine. All yours. All yours. Yeah. So, so what he's talking about is Bayesian analysis, which basically refers to Thomas Bayes, who essentially created a, a thing called Bayes' rule, which is about conditional probabilities. So, a sort of very intuitive way of, of thinking about this is you might have heard of a phrase called, you know, updating my priors. So, when people say, I'm updating my priors, what do they mean? They say, I'm using information that I have and beliefs I have from the past. I'm using evidence I have in front of me and I'm combining that, those previous beliefs with the evidence I have in front of me to update my beliefs about the future. So that sounds really, really abstract, but what it means in reality and in a context of a football index 
is that you have past evidence, which is PB scores. You have the data that's in front of you. It's a given game. Um, and then you, you're really combining those two sources of information to then make predictions about future games. So the most simple example of this, and this is where the simulation comes in, is like, let's say that I want to model Kevin De Bruyne's PB scores for the next five games. Okay, how would I go about this process? Well, my prior beliefs are what pieces of evidence do I have about his past performance? Well, I obviously start by having his PB scores. So imagine I've got a bag and I throw 10 PB scores of Kevin De Bruyne in it and I set it to one side. I then make a draw from that bag and I pull out a score of say 200. Okay, I'm going to jot down that score of 200. What I do now is I do the same exercise across all other midfielders who'll be playing in that game. So let's say there's 50 other midfielders in this game day. I'm going to basically draw from their past PB scores and I'm going to, for each player, I'm going to draw one value. So let's say I've got Kimmich, he's got 199. Let's say I've got Ilicic, he's got 180. You do that across all players. And then what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, in this example, does Kevin De Bruyne have the best PB score across those players? Yes, great. No, he doesn't. That's one simulation. You then repeat that thousands of times. And what it allows you to do is get an estimate of the probability of him winning across those different game days. Does that make sense? Mm, yes. Now, there's another layer you can put on, on top of that. Because at the moment, what I'm saying is I'm only using each player's past PB scores to predict a score for a game day today and into the future. But of course, the evidence, the game in which he scored 200 last week has a lot of context attached to it. You know, was he playing at home? Was he playing against Norwich? What position was he playing? You can attach all sorts of context and information to those scores. So while you would go through that same process for simulating his scores relative to other players, you can also build on context for how those scores were made. So you can start to build up a much richer picture of how those scores came about. And what it means you can do is you can probabilistically estimate what is the likelihood of him winning on that given game day. And you're doing that for all players, for all game days. And from that, you can essentially build up a picture. Okay, what is their expected probability? What is their simulated probability of winning game days over the next month? And therefore, what is their expected value for the next month? And that's kind of the foundations of how it works. I mean, that is fascinating. Absolutely Amazing. fascinating. I'd love to see some kind of like long blog posts and on all of this stuff because I think there's, there's so much to dig into. We don't have that much time left, but we do have quite a few more questions. We've got one again from Index Analyst. To what extent can the model reflect or keep up with the player's PB improvement? So that's obviously such a hard thing to model, isn't it, Machine? Yeah, totally. That's, that's one of the hardest things. So to go back to that example where we're sort of drawing just PB scores from different bags of each player, you know, if I'm simulating, I'm just drawing that score of 200, doing it again, I'm drawing a score of 220, do it again, I'm drawing a score of 230. There's no time component that you're modeling there. So that means you're not really thinking about form. The way that you can incorporate that, similar to the question earlier, is that you can actually model what's called time effects. So you can say, okay, I'm going to upweight scores that came in the last, I don't know, two months versus scores from a year ago. So there are ways you can do that. It makes the analysis a lot more complicated. But one of the, I think one of the benefits of thinking about this type of analysis in a Bayesian way is that it updates over time. 
So today, let's say I've only got 10 scores of Kevin De Bruyne playing in midfield for Man City. You know, next weekend I'll have 11. Weekend after I'll have 12 and so on and so forth. So over time, the pool of information that you're drawing from and you're simulating from is going to adjust with time. So if he has a sudden spike in his form, the likelihood of you drawing a higher score is going to increase with time. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously really interesting to hear you kind of explain that. I think, what do you, uh, you know, in terms of outliers when players perform far better than that expected, than they expected, how does that affect you and your models? Yeah, it's, it's another tricky thing to try and model. The technical answer is that you can adjust your, when we talked about prior beliefs, prior beliefs are represented in a distribution of data. So you can adjust that initial distribution of data that you're starting with. So if you're very skeptical that Antonio has come out with a 350 score, and you're very skeptical that that's actually going to be sort of a structural change, which is going to make him you know, a, a really good dividend returner for the next 12 months, you can adjust the distribution of which you're simulating your drawing from. But it's a very tricky problem because there's always a trade-off between sort of downplaying those spikes versus being able to predict them in the first place. Yeah, really fascinating stuff, man. I think it's what you're coming up with is, is definitely unprecedented in the FI community. Alpha, you're having a great breather, mate. Uh, so am I. It's, it's fascinating to hear this man speak. Um, <laughs> Amazing. I'm just sitting here taking, soaking it all in and just, I can't quite fathom what you're doing, but it's unbelievable. Amazing. Live, unadulterated. It's, it's I mean, privilege, I would definitely, it? I would definitely add the caveats that, you know, this... This stuff is hard and it's all sort of work in progress and it's never gonna it's never gonna get you like that definitive answer of I need to put all of my money in this one player. But what it can do is it can give you an understanding of thinking about uncertainty. And you know, while it's really hard to predict the winner of a given game day, you know, the highest probability you're probably gonna get is like a 25% chance. So three times out of four you're not going to win. But when you think about extracting that over the course of like a couple months or even a season, and this is where team of the month comes in and is so valuable, what you're doing is you're going to have a much better guess at who's going to make those teams over the longer term. That's awesome. Awesome. We've got a question here from Bobby Axelrod. Fascinated by your work, man. Are you building this AI model as a hobby, an experiment, or are you actually looking to use it to make proper financial decisions on FI? If so, how much of your human-led decision-making will you retain, i.e. 20% of deposits by human intuition? Yeah, I'm always skeptical when people say that everything is entirely model-driven, because what that means in reality is that you're sort of deferring a lot of your decision-making to something which is quite complicated and attached with a lot of uncertainty. So so for me, I've always thought about this stuff as, you know, I'm the one who's making the decisions, I'm doing the modeling, I'm sort of understanding and I'm tweaking how the model works, but it's really just a, a layer to my own framework in decision making. So I'm only going to use this stuff to help produce signals of which type of players I think are more likely to win dividends and therefore have higher value and not use it as like, okay, the model says buy Antonio and then go and buy Antonio. It's going to be a way of just kind of filtering all that noise. And yeah, of course, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm using this to, to use in my own portfolio, of course. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and what have you found so far that has worked really well from you when you're kind of looking at your model and you're kind of basing some decisions off it? Have you grown in confidence in terms of, you know, the decisions that you're making using that or is it still kind of touch and go for you? 
Yeah, I think one challenge is, you know, as we all, as we all talked about, it's it's a really weird time for football. So it's hard to extrapolate too much from this three month period. But I'm definitely sort of building confidence in how the model how the model is working, and that's why I think that that team of the month announcement is brilliant for this because it I can now retarget and re-optimize the model to try and figure out okay what are the who are the ten players which are gonna the eleven players that are gonna show up in that in that team of the month. And one of the benefits of this approach, as I mentioned, was that as you get more and more data, of course, your predictive accuracy is going to increase. So in theory, when you, you've run this model for three quarters of a season, towards the end of the season, it should be, should be most accurate. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really a work in progress. And you know, to the previous question, part of this is just for me to sort of keep on top of things, keep pushing myself and learning these different methods and apply it to a kind of passion that, that I really care about. Yeah, really, really fascinating. Really, really fascinating. FI Lammings, I promise we're getting to the end, Alpha. Me and you can um, <laughs> stop having our brains absolutely fried by this magic man, magic machine. So FI Lambings says, would you be able to go into more detail about how the simulations work? Opposition effects sound very interesting. Does it factor in the in the increase in performance for a relegation battler versus nothing to play for in mid-table at this point in the season? That's kind of what Alpha was going on about earlier, I think. Also, what kind of error rates do you see in the projected PB scores? Do you model these on a 95% distribution I'd be very interested to see these as well as a percentage of chance could be great for team of the month so a lot there to unpack machine but I'll, but I'll let you go at it again yeah so I think we covered a lot of these um, mm. already around the sort of mechanics of how how the simulations work there's a couple of aspects of that that question we haven't covered I, I think the one about you know modeling opposition effects is interesting so one of the ways this model works is that it treats each individual PB score as its own unique data point. What do I mean by that? So Kevin De Bruyne playing at home against Norwich, scoring 200 in this position, is treated equally to all of his other scores, but is treated equally to all other teams and all other players. And the reason you do that is because you don't want to be modeling on just 10 PB scores. What you do is you can basically aggregate up across different variables in the model. So you can aggregate up at the team level, so Manchester City players. So I might not have a lot of data about the Bruyne, but I've got a lot of data about how Manchester City do and PB. Same thing about positions. I may only have 10 data points of the Bruyne playing in midfield, but I've got God knows how many other midfielders. And that's when the opposition thing comes in. So if I want to predict his score against Arsenal, say, I might not have a data point on him playing Arsenal before, but I've got tons of data on all of the other players in the game who have played against Arsenal. And what that means is that when I'm coming up with his estimate for a PB score, I can either upweight or downweight that based on the effect of the opposition. And because this is done in a, in a completely generalizable way, what it means is that it's completely agnostic to the team. So if there is a case that you've got a mid-table team who's just kind of sitting there listlessly not doing anything, that will show up by the coefficient on whoever that team is, let's call it Everton, being relatively low or high, sorry, if it's, if it's the, opponent, the opponent, versus if you're modelling a team which is battling relegation, then your coefficient will be much higher and therefore your estimate for a PB score is going to adjust and therefore the probability of winning is going to adjust. So sort of all that to say that you can really model the effect of all these different dimensions, such as how is an opponent doing and what is the context in which that opponent is playing. And then the final question around uncertainty. So generally when you're 
because this is done by simulation, you are inherently measuring uncertainty. So if I'm simulating Kevin De Bruyne's PB score, because I'm running that simulation for him thousands of times, that's going to give me a distribution of his PB scores. So it might give me an average of 200, but it's going to give me an understanding of, is he likely, you know, is that distribution, is it skewed? Is he likely to get those outside scores or is it very tightly wrapped to rounds 200? And I think that's a really important point because a lot of the analysis that you see is, is focusing on averages. And then averages are only just like one way of representing the data. It's usually the distribution that's much more informative. So you're inherently measuring uncertainty that way by thinking about a distribution and therefore the, the probability around an estimate. But what you're doing after you've simulated those scores is you're essentially comparing them across players. So you're saying, okay, I'm going to do a thousand simulations of all midfielders during this game day. I'm going to mark down how many times has Kevin De Bruyne beat the other 50 midfielders who are playing. And then the average of that is going to be my probability estimate. So uncertainty plays sort of more of an indirect role than I think the question was originally asking. I mean, look, I could sit here and pretend that I understood every single thing that you just said, but I'm not going to. And I'm going to swiftly move on to one last question. <laughs> it's from Dry Off Your Cheeks, who is actually going to be coming on the podcast pretty soon himself. He's been doing some cracking stuff. I'm not seeing if you've seen Machine. He's got too many questions here. He says, what's the optimal timescale to model? One match, a whole career. How would you approach modeling the more intangible aspects of FI? Media, market sentiment, etc. Why have you decided a Bayesian approach is best suited for FI? So you've answered the last one on the Bayesian approach. The other two, I think, are really interesting, Machine. I've kind of been on record talking about how even when the market cap hits its quote-unquote peak and dividend increases are either very, very frugal or don't happen, or they're a percentage of commissions on a monthly basis, for example. I've always said, and I've been on record saying, that there will still be those 100 to 400% rises because football is so transient and because it's impossible to actually model a player's career. Is that something that you subscribe to? Yeah, I'd say probably worth giving a couple of shout outs. I've seen his analysis and I think it's it's really good. He's putting out some amazing stuff. And also probably shout out Jay Hall as well, who's been putting out some content around simulation. So worth checking those two out to sort of learn more about these types of approaches. But I think, yeah, they're really good questions. In terms of measuring the time scale, yeah, we've talked a lot about sort of career arcs in the past and how can you measure what a natural career arc of a player may be. I think it's it's really tricky to go out much beyond even sort of one or two seasons. Again, sort of go back to this idea that there are different types of models for different purposes. This modeling that I've spoken about is really about simulating game days and simulating likelihood of winning in those game days. And then you can extrapolate value from that. You know, if the task is to understand you know, future careers for young players. And that's a very, it's fundamentally, it's a very different modeling task. And um, in that instance, you know, one thing that you can potentially do is you can say, okay, what are the attributes about players who are performing really well today? And how similar are they to some of these young players? Or even, and you see this, this is done in basketball, actually in the US, you, see, you can see it. They do things like if a player, if, you know, if Michael Jordan was playing today, what would his stats look like? And mm. then who is the closest comparison to players playing today? So I think you could probably do that with FI is, um, is one approach. How hard is that to do? I mean, again, we're, we're going on a tangent now, you know, with someone like Michael Jordan, the rules were different when he played. So if you, yeah. were, if you were looking at like a Pele or a Maradona and thinking about what the stats would be like, like how difficult is that to do? 
yeah, you're bang on. Like it's it's really hard, and you know, there's so much context that you've got to attach to to the time it was taking place, and and you know, the game rules and everything you talked about. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an inherently difficult challenge, which is why I think there's probably more bang for your buck by focusing on a sort of one season window, and then focusing, okay, what is the likelihood of a player winning a given game day? conditional on all of the context I have about his past scores and the other players' past scores. And then from that, backing out, okay, what's your expected value for the season? I think that's, it's not easy to do, but I think it's, you're likely to get better results than if you're, if you're trying to understand, okay, you know, which, which of these generational talents, quote unquote, are going to become the next Messi. It's really hard to extrapolate given the uncertainty of, you know, what, what they may, what their career arc may look like over the course of a decade. There's that word again, career arc. Well, gents, I mean, is there anything else that you guys want to add before we go into the Patreon-only FI in five section and then we wrap up? Any other business? No, I mean, that's perfect. Thank you very much for having us both on board. I think it's, it's been nice to talk about sort of um, how we can see FI growing and you know put some positive light, hopefully, on the whole situation, given it's quite a, a dark time right now. Hopefully, mm. everyone's enjoyed. Um, it's been a pleasure, obviously, being on here and obviously keep doing what you're doing and machine keep being an absolute animal. <laughs> and wow, basically, wow. Yeah, no, hope, this was good fun. Um, hopefully, hopefully the stuff was, was useful and not too far in the weeds. You know, it's, it's complicated stuff, but I think there was an intuition to it that kind of makes sense. Um, mm. And yeah, hope you enjoy the content. Well, gents, that's all we've got time for. If you guys enjoyed that, please do subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. Please share the podcast. Alpha, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, the at is at chaser underscore alpha. Um, lots of good stuff on there so follow me if you don't already and uh, yeah thank you so much Fig really enjoyed absolutely it absolutely no worries mate you were fantastic and Machine? yeah same on Twitter the handle is at index machine yeah thanks for uh, thanks for having us absolutely no worries man you're both excellent machine you've blown my mind thank you so much for coming on if you guys are commuting right now enjoy your commute if you folks are not commuting doing whatever you're doing then you know stay safe and all that stuff sorry if we didn't get to answer all your questions we had so many that i had to cull a couple during the show as well otherwise we're gonna go too long football index is a gambling platform only bet we can afford to lose and stop when the fun stops always remember that thank you very much everyone for listening and have a great